right, you may be seated. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 8. If you got one of the programs or bulletins, I'm not sure what they call it here. Uh, I know the text is in there. Uh, like they said, my name is Travis Fox, and I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, I've been there for about three years. Before that, I spent 10 years in Las Vegas. So I'm just going to be straight up honest with you. I use words like dude, bro, man, all those things, okay? Because that's just who I am and where I come from. Today, I want to talk to you guys about being a church for the city. Being a church that proclaims who Jesus is with your words, but also demonstrates who Jesus is with your actions. And there could be some of you in here today, I can't help but to think there are some of you in here today, who maybe this is your first time to Iron City, and you're going, are you going to tell these people to go out and tell other people about Jesus? And I just want to put you to ease, yes I am. That's exactly what I'm going to do. What you've got to understand is that when somebody is telling you about Jesus, what they are doing is sharing with you the greatest joy they've ever experienced in their life. Psalm 34 says this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And since being in Alabama, I have tasted and seen very good food. As a matter of fact, that's all I feel like I have done is eaten really good food. But if you were to come up to me and you were to say, Hey, Travis, where's the best steak in the world? You know what I'd tell you? Atlanta, Georgia. Keith Rathbuns. How do I know that? Because I went there, I got a gift card, and I went there on my anniversary, and I tasted and I've seen that the steak is good. And my wife remembers it because she goes, that was the anniversary, all you talked about was the steak. And that's what I did. You see, to taste something implies experience. It means that you personally experience, you take it in. And when we have tasted and seen the goodness of God, we have had an experience enter into our life that surpasses any steak this world can offer. We have found an experience and a joy that surpasses, and I know this is controversial in this state, any national championship that could be won. That's what they're doing. When they are telling you about Jesus, they are telling you about somebody who can radically change your life, and it's the most loving thing they can do. You see, that happened to me when I was 15 years old. I grew up in a family that was religious but had no real relationship with Jesus. My dad would literally have to pry me off of door frames and force me into a van to get me to go to church. And I just absolutely despised it. Sunday mornings, a lot of the world goes, yeah, and I went, no, I don't want to go anywhere. But God in his grace sent this kid into my life by the name of Mike. And the way I met Mike is I was about ready to get jumped and beat up for my ice cream. And Mike came to my rescue. And I was like, hey, any dude that's going to, you know, help me out, we're going to be friends. And so I built a relationship with this guy, and all this guy kept doing was telling me about Jesus, telling me about the gospel. And every single week, he would invite me to this Friday night outreach thing at his church. And every single week, I would tell him no. I didn't want to go to it. But Mike got a little bit wise. You see, Mike started playing to the passions of a high school boy. He said, Travis, you're from Kentucky. I'm from Kentucky originally. He goes, you like basketball? I said, oh, yeah, I do. He goes, they play basketball on Friday nights. He said, you like pizza? I said, oh, yeah, I do. He said, they have pizza on Friday nights. He said, you know that girl at your school? And I said, yeah. He goes, she goes to this church on Friday nights. I was like, you don't have to tell me twice. And I started going. Played ball, ate the pizza, hung out with the girl, eventually started dating the girl. She should have never have done that, by the way. And, and, and I would sit there and I would listen to Scott talk about the Bible, but it didn't mean anything to me. But back home, my dad thought something was strange. Because like I said, he would have to pry me off of door frames to get me to go to church, but now I'm going to church on my own. And I'm not going to tell dad, hey, the reason I'm going to church is because there's this really good looking girl. 
But my dad doesn't say, hey, you have to stop going. What my dad did is he said, I'm going to check it out. And my dad took me from the Friday night outreach thing and forced me to go on Sunday mornings. By this time, the girl had broken up with me because our youth pastor said, you shouldn't date non-Christians, and that really made me mad. But my dad sat in the main auditorium and listened to Pastor Bob share the gospel. And while he was sitting there, God opened his heart to receive Christ. And, my, and Jesus radically changed my father's life. You see, what dad understood is that when Jesus saves you, he doesn't put you in a trophy case to pull you out once a year, polish you off, and tell the glory stories and put you back. But when Jesus saves you, he reconciles you to God the Father, and he gives you a mission to live. And immediately upon this moment, my dad started telling me about Jesus. He jumped into our high school youth group. He rocked the socks with the flip-flops. I don't understand the style. He does. And people were like, this is incredible. And all my friends started hanging out with him. And dad made me go to a high school youth camp in Colorado. And he got on a bus with 55 high school students, drove from Louisville, Kentucky to Colorado. Yeah, some of you are like, wow, he really loved Jesus. <clears throat> and while we were there... I started hanging out with all the kids that didn't want to be there. I stood in the back. I started getting in trouble. I mean, my D group leader started talking to my dad like, what's wrong with your son? I mean, the only reason I was there was to play ball and to find a new girl. And my dad noticed this, and on Thursday of that week, he pulled me into his dorm room, and he sat me down. And I can tell you on one hand how many times I've seen my father cry. And with tears rolling down his face, he shared the gospel with me. He talked about just what that song said, that Jesus lived the life I was meant to live. That each and every one of us in this room, we were called to live in perfect obedience to God. But instead of calling God's, following God's way, we decided to follow our own way. And because of that, we have sinned and we've turned against God. But Jesus, in coming in his life, he lived a perfect life on our behalf for us as a gift. But Jesus also died the death you and I deserve to die. Because of that rebellion, because of that treason and that turning from God. Jesus died on the cross. We were supposed to be there, but he went there for us. But he also rose again, showing that he has accomplished everything to secure and assure our salvation. And it's only through trust in him and him alone can we find the joy of God in our hearts. And it was the first time in my life, and it was scary that I felt the spirit open up my heart to want that. The part I didn't tell you is when I saw my dad get baptized, he got baptized in the pond at the girl's house who broke up with me. And I remember as he was being baptized, they said this, you're baptized in the name of Jesus, your Lord and Savior. And I would tell you all day long, if you want to save me, I'm game. But if you want to be my Lord, no. My parents would even tell you I called the shots. But that day when my dad shared the gospel with me yet again, I wanted Jesus not only to save me, but to lead me and control me and use me. Now, Pastor Bob was on the, the trip, and I remember Dad going, so do you want to do that? And I said, yes, I want Jesus. And I cried out to him. He goes, good, now go down the hallway and talk to Pastor Bob and make sure I told you right. And so, so I go down there, and I start talking to Pastor Bob. Dad doesn't just share the gospel with me, though, and this is all going to get to a point here in a second. Dad doesn't just share the gospel with me, but the moment I became a Christian, Dad started to take me with him. You see, Dad didn't just share the gospel with his words, but he also with his actions. 
And he got uh, me and my brothers, and he took us down to the Portland Christian Mission to where kids would come in, and they would serve food, and they would hand things out, and my parents would serve the food, and we would just talk about basketball. But mom and dad would come, and they'd sit down, and they would share Jesus with these kids. I can remember on Christmas Eve when I was in high school, my dad woke up. No, he didn't wake us up. He only woke me up. I guess I needed it more. He woke me up, and he said, Travis, get your shoes on. Let's go. And we went to a church, and we picked up gift baskets, and we started to go around the neighborhoods handing out these Christmas baskets with food and presents to these families. And with every single door that was open, my dad told him about Jesus. That's what he did. We live by Christian sayings that really have no biblical warrant. Some of us have heard this one. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. It sounds good, it's easy to say, but it's not true. It's not biblical. What does the Bible tell us? That faith comes by hearing in Romans 10. That if all we do is we just simply go meet the physical needs of the world, but we don't take them to the eternal significance of who Jesus is, we are just making this life a little bit more comfortable, but the rest of eternity is not going to be. And it was through my father that I just didn't know any different. That a church that is for the city, because the church is not a building. These bricks are nice. This stage is really cool. But this stage and these bricks aren't going to go out into this community and start telling people about Jesus. You see, the church's people have been rescued and redeemed. And the moment my dad got saved, that's all he did, and he took us along. But not only did he do that, but the church I was a part of modeled it. And that's what I want to show you guys today. That in order to see much joy in this city, I believe what God wants to do is not only open our mouths, but also our hands. That we will go out and we will share the good news of who Jesus is absolutely with our mouths. But we also need to share who Jesus is through a demonstration with our hands. And that's what this guy by the name of Philip did in Acts chapter 8. It says in Acts chapter 8, if you got your Bible, verse 1, it says this. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that, great day, on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Some of you, you read that and you're going, what is going on here? You feel like you've just walked into the middle of a movie. You missed the opening credits, the character development, the whole thing. Well, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is resurrected, and he's with his disciples, and he's been teaching them for about 40 days. And during that 40 days, I could just imagine the disciples are around him, and they're just ready to go. They're like, Jesus, you're alive. Let us go. Let us go out and do what you have called us to do. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells them to wait. I mean, it's like the pep rally. You know what I'm saying? At a football game, all the players are just ready to take the field, clean house, take names, you know, the whole deal. And the coach will, hold on, time out. Just wait a second. And they're going, why? Because in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells them, you can't live this mission in your own might and your own power. He says, you want to go, but you need to hold back. Because here's what you got to understand. The Holy Spirit is going to come into your life. And when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he's going to empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. The Holy Spirit's job, his job in our life, is not just to open our hearts like he did for me in Colorado to receive Jesus. His job is not only just to grow me to be more like Jesus, 
But the Holy Spirit's job is also to empower me to live out Jesus' mission. The only way I know to practically describe this is with my middle daughter, Journey. I got this pull-up bar in my backyard. And I'll go out there and do some pull-ups and stuff. And my kids think it's really, really cool. And they want to be like Daddy. And so Journey will come up and show, good dad, I want to do some pull-ups. And so I'll put her on the bar, and you know what she's doing? She's just hanging there, and she can't do anything. And then what I will do is I'll come up underneath her, and I'll lift her up. And the next thing you know, she thinks she's an all-star. And then she gets like her daddy gets a little prideful and starts talking noise like, hey, mommy, look at me. Look what I'm doing. Now, is she doing it? Kind of. But who's empowering her to do it? Daddy. You know, and to teach her that lesson, I let go. No, I didn't do that. No. But... But she's pulling herself up. And how foolish is it for us to go, look what I did. Look at all these people I told about Jesus. Look at all these people I saved. We didn't do it. It's the Holy Spirit of God living in us and through us, empowering us for Jesus' mission. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 8, what we see is that the disciples and the apostles, they haven't left Jerusalem. They're still camping out at home. And in Acts chapter 7, we read about this guy by the name of Stephen who preaches the gospel and he shares the message of faith and the religious leaders don't like it and they tell him to be quiet. And Stephen says this, he says, you stiff-necked people and circumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Now those are like fighting words. <laughs> I mean, you go up to the religious establishment who have all their pride, righteousness, and their religious doing. And he says, you know what, you may look good, but your heart's dead. You're jumping through all these hoops trying to earn God's favor, but you don't even know God. And they put their fingers in their ears and they get mad. And it says that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looks up and he sees Jesus standing up at the right hand of the Father, which is very significant because what did Jesus do when he accomplished salvation? He sat down. But at this point, we read in the Bible of the very first Christian martyr. And it's almost as if Jesus is standing up looking at Stephen going, you are confessing me before men, so I am confessing you before my father. Cheering him on. And as Stephen is about ready to die with these people throwing rocks at him, listen to what he says. Lord, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Does that sound like somebody you know? Isn't that what Jesus said in Luke 23 when he's hanging on the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So even in Stephen's last breath, he is praying for the forgiveness of the people who are trying to kill him. It's only knowing and tasting and seeing the glory of Jesus that could cause you in your dying breath to pray for those who are trying to take you out. And it says, upon that moment, immediately, a persecution broke out into the city. And, they, and then look what it says. It says, they were scattered through what? The regions of Judea and Samaria. In Acts chapter 1, where did Jesus tell them to go? Judea and Samaria. I do believe that all persecution the church experience, experiences is satanic. But the one thing I do not believe is that Satan and God are some dualistic powers who are equally powerful and they're just fighting. Like, you know, this guy tapped out in round one, this one taps out in round two, and they just keep going back and forth. Even when Satan is trying to squash the church of God, he does it, whether he knows it or not, he is pushing forward the people of God to do the very thing God has called him to do. 
You see, persecution is absolutely satanic. But God is showing us in this text is that when Satan thinks he is winning, he is actually in control of all things, moving it in such a way that we will go out and spread his name and fame. Early church father by the name of Tertullian said this. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I had a friend who was in a closed country in the Arabian Peninsula. And he had to leave this area because persecution came forth and three of his friends lost their lives for preaching the gospel. And when he left... A lot of people went, that area is not going to be reached for Jesus. But he said, to show the power and the glory of God, God swept in and more people came to Christ after that event than any time before. It's almost as if Satan starts to persecute the church. What he's doing is putting wind on a, like a forest fire. And we just spread. And we see that the church was scattered to these very regions to, play, to preach the gospel. But who didn't go? If you look in verse uh, 1 again, it says, All were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So many times in the church, people get comfortable and they think the goal of missions is only to be accomplished by the pastors. Now, I've been able to spend this week with your pastors. I love these guys. They're fun to talk to. You got Cody, Zach, Aaron, John. You've got these guys and they're very talented. They're very equipped. They're awesome people. I'll give you that. But the job of reaching your community does not rest upon them alone. What we see is that when these guys were scattered, the apostles stayed back. And the people were sent out to do what? To proclaim and demonstrate the fame of Jesus in their communities. That's who went. And they didn't stay quiet. In 1946 in China, they kicked out all of the Christian missionaries out of China. In 1949, I'm sorry. 365 missionaries were sent out. They said, you can't come back. And the evangelical world went, okay, China is lost. But when those people left, did you know that Christianity grew 30 to 40%? Because here's what they understood. That when the leaders are gone, the church continues on. And it keeps going and spreading. That's what's going on. And as these people went into communities... They encountered people that were difficult to talk to, hard to talk to. Some of them even went into areas in which it was, like many of places in our world, you can't proclaim the name and fame of Jesus. But when you have tasted and seen the goodness of God, it doesn't matter what you're going to encounter. That you're willing to pour it all out for his glory. And you go to the very people that you may despise. How do I know this? Because that's exactly what Philip did. Look in verse 4. It says this. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. <clears throat> Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when he, they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. You see, when the gospel persecution came, Philip took off and he ran to Samaria. And if you know anything about Jewish and Samaritan relationships, they didn't like each other. They absolutely despised each other. The rabbis would actually teach that if you ate the bread, if you ate the bread of a Samaritan, it was basically the equivalent of eating swine flesh. 
Another rabbi would pray this, O God, in the resurrection, please do not remember the Samaritans. Geographically, you got Galilee at the top. You got Judea at the bottom. And very devout Jewish people, instead of just taking the straight, easy route through Samaria, they would go around just to avoid them. And that blows my mind. Because I have driven across this country at least two or three times with kids, three kids, nine and younger. And I'll tell you right now, I'm a Kentucky fan, and I do not like Duke University at all. Okay? I got to clap for that. Okay? It's Kentucky people, okay? But if I had to drive with three kids, I'd go through there. And I would find every cracker barrel along the way. Because we got to get out and run around, you know what I'm saying? But not these guys. They would avoid them. Why? Because they despised them. They hated them. They were religiously, they weren't on the same page. They were heretics. Ethnically, they weren't like them, so they were racist. But here's what Philip does. He goes to the very people that he was told to despise. And he reaches out his hand and he tells them about Jesus and he serves them. Because here's what we've got to understand. That in the body of Christ, there should be absolutely no prejudice or racism. That Jesus came to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And when the gospel impacts your life, it changes the way you see people. You don't see them by what makes them different. You see them as someone created in the image of God who needs to know Jesus, and so you reach out and you befriend them. A couple years ago, I read this story, uh, the biography of this guy by the name of John Patton. And some of you may not know who he is. I thought he was pretty fascinating because John Patton was called to take the gospel to the New Hebride Islands. The only problem with these islands was this. He didn't speak their language. Second, they were cannibals. One of his Sunday school teachers came up to him and said, John, you are leaving certainty for uncertainty. You are leaving the work of God. A deacon in his church said this, the cannibals. You'll be eaten by cannibals. And I love John's statement because here's how John responded. Listen to what he says. He says, I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospects soon to be laid, uh, laid in the grave. there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you, that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it'll make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. John looks at this man, and he's pretty bold, and he just said, Hey, man, we're both going to die. You're a little farther or closer to that than I am. You're going to be put in the ground. I could possibly be eaten by people. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how we die. It only matters how we live. And when Jesus resurrects us, I'm going to be resurrected in the same way that you are. John ended up staying on that island for 35 years. While there, his wife died giving birth to his son. Both of them died. And his biography says that John had to lay on their grave three to five nights to keep them from getting dug up by the cannibals. But upon leaving the island 35 years later, he said he could not recall a single person who did not at least profess faith in Jesus Christ. One of the village chiefs came up to him. They said, John, I need to ask you a question. He's like, what? He said, we tried to get into your hut. We tried to attack you. 
but who was that army that was surrounding you each time we tried? And the only thing John could conclude is that God put his angels around him to preserve his life because he was the only gospel witness. I read another one about a guy named John Dober and David Nitchum. They were sitting in church one Sunday, quite like you are, and they're sitting there and they're listening to the preacher speak. And the preacher starts to talk about 3,000 slaves in the West Indy Islands who have no access to the gospel. And it was convicting them, and rather than just sitting there and just letting the conviction go away, they chose to do something about it, but they did something pretty radical. They didn't just say, I'm going to go to that country. They said, I'm going to sell myself into slavery so I can be amongst the very people I'm going to reach. And it says as these two guys got onto the boat and they were pulling away from the dock, they could look back to see their family and friends, all of them, weeping and crying. And one of them put his hand in the air and he said, May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. As he's looking there, counting the cost of leaving his family, the only thing he could think of is Jesus' reward. And what is Jesus' reward? Absolutely to sit at the right hand of his father, be reunited with his father after accomplishing everything. But his reward is also the ransoming with his blood, according to Revelation 5, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all this young man could do was put his hand in the air and cry out to Jesus to use him to gain his reward. It's all he could think about. Book of Galatians, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us, he says that in Christ there's neither, there's neither Jew or Greek, slave or, slave or free, male or female, war eagle or roll tide. And I know I just said that and some of you are mad. There is neither Kentucky Wildcat or Louisville Cardinal. Where I'm from, there's neither Utah Ute or BYU whatever. Ephesians tells us that when Jesus came, what did he do? He came to divide the wall of hostility we build up towards each other. Jesus absolutely reconciles us to God, but he also reconciles us to one another. And what Philip did going into Samaria, he went to the very people he was supposed to hate and despise, and he shared the gospel with them. One of the things that crushed me was on November 17th of 2012, right after the election, the presidential election. The Salt Lake Tribune wrote this. It says that Utah sends out the fourth most racist tweets after the election, only behind Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama. My state's right there with you. But this should not be said of any single church. Why? Because of the Jesus we worship. The one who rescues people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And Philip went. And what did Philip do when he went? Listen to what it says. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, and there was much joy in that city. Oftentimes when we read the book of Acts, we get so mesmerized by the miraculous that takes place. And we overlook the simple fact that as Philip went into the city, he saw a need and he met it. 
Tim Keller writes this. He says, these statements are so simple that we may overlook the wisdom herein. The only way we will see a movement of God that lifts our whole city is if there is a combination of word and deed. We must not be too distracted by the fact that Philip's deed ministry was miraculous. The fact was that Philip saw physical misery around him and he worked on it. He cast out demons. The crowds flocked to the, and listened to the preaching. In the same way, the people of a city need to see, A, Christians having compassion on the physically suffering, the poor, the dying, the orphans. And they need to see, B, the changed lives of people who through Christ have been delivered from psychological and spiritual bondage. Then they will listen to the gospel in mass. When we moved to Salt Lake City, we looked at it, and I will tell you, everything looked absolutely perfect. The streets were clean. The buildings were clean. You'd go around and you'd ask people, what are the needs of this community? And they would say, we really don't have any. I mean, they are a people that do not see their need for Jesus or even from outside help. But as we moved in there, I did, couldn't necessarily see any needs. But eventually, as I started talking to people, I heard about needs. And then I did some research to find out that the people within my area, I've got about 100,000 people that live right around me. That within that area, they had three primary needs. One was affordable housing. Two, affordable food. Three, companionship. They're lonely. And as I'm standing out in my front yard and I'm talking to my neighbor, I find out this story that somebody who used to live on our end of the street would get all the neighborhood together to throw parties. Now, I'm kind of the extrovert in my family. My wife is the introvert. And when we moved up there, she goes, how can I be on mission with you? How can I do this? You just go out and you just talk to people. You don't care who they are. You just walk up and strike up a conversation. But she goes, what can I do? And it crossed my mind that somebody used to throw parties and make food. And I went, you know what, Jess? I got it. She goes, what? I said, if you cook, they will come. And she went, what? Now, my wife is half Greek. When I married her, I, I got introduced to this wonderful animal called a lamb. It's so tasty. Feta. Greek desserts, and I said, honey, you are an unbelievable cook. They will come. I came. I keep coming back. I was like, if you will cook, they will come. And so we went through, and we handed out flyers all through our neighborhood. We said, breakfast on Sherman, and we decided we were going to do a breakfast. And we ended up in our neighborhood having 23 people in our front yard, an iguana, and a gecko, because my kids took pictures with them. And every single person that came in said, this is incredible. Why would you do this? And it gave us an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. That we believe in a God who loved us so much that he came after us to reconcile us to him. And God is community within himself. And we are here to proclaim who he is. And we just started talking to him and telling him about how Christ came to reconcile back to the Father. Through everything he has done. And you know what every single one of them has said to me? I never heard that before. And then they thought it was weird because they go, you're a pastor. They've never met one of those before. And then they couldn't figure out why I liked them enough to invite them into my front yard to throw a party for them. You know what that reminds me of? This guy named Jesus. That he went to this tax collector's house by the name of Matthew. And he ate with them. And what did Matthew do? He invited all his friends. He invited all his friends. And what was so interesting is some of them started leaving. <laughs> it's so funny. 
One of them was walking away, and he said, hey, the next time we do this, the men will cook and drink whiskey, and all the girls can just hang out. And I went, well, we'll see. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, all right. But when you're living on mission and you're around people who don't know Jesus, it's messy. It's messy. But one of the things Jesus we see did, and we see Philip did, is what did he do? He hung out with messy people, and he did not blush. He did not shun them. He did not run away from them. But he reached out to them in grace. And what was the result of all of this? It tells us there was much joy in the city. Do you want to see joy in your community? Do you want to see joy in your neighborhood, in your state, in your nation? I do. And what did Philip lay out a template for us to do? To go into our neighborhoods and absolutely tell them about Jesus with our words. But also show them who Jesus is with our actions. To share the gospel with them. One of the cool things, and I'll end with this. Because I think I went longer than I said. My apologies. When we moved into Salt Lake. (coughs) Excuse me. When we moved into Salt Lake City. Like I said, we couldn't figure out the needs. Nobody would tell us. And so we called our mayor's office. And we said, uh, it, was, it was incredible. We just said, hey, we've got students from Las Vegas, because that's where I was from. We've got students who come up here, and we want to just serve the city. What can we do? Well, they put us in uh, contact with the person who's like second in command. And they said, we've got this area downtown that needs to be renovated. It's like needs to be uh, like uh, mulch and plants and all this stuff and so these students came up we had about 15 of them and they're used to 115 degrees 120 Salt Lake City was about 95 that day and we're like oh you guys should be able to kill this this is like winter to you and so they came up we said here's what we want you to do we're going to go down and we're just going to serve in this area we're going to renovate it and we're going to work and I'm just going to ask you work with the joy of the Lord on your face Just go out there, get dirty, and just serve well. And so each of these students went down there. I mean, they were covered head to toe in dirt. They're throwing mulch around. They're laughing. They're joking around. They're having fun. And I told my buddy Brian, he had a bunch of shovels in the back of his truck. I said, hey, Brian, pull around here. We need to get some shovels out. Well, he pulls his truck around. He parks it, and he walks away. But as he's walking away, a police officer pulls up with her lights on because Brian parked in a place he shouldn't. And so I'm thinking, here we are trying to serve the city, bless the city, and now we're going to end up paying the city. That's interesting. And so I yell at him and say, hey, Brian, Brian, hey, bro, you need to get your truck and move it. And the police officer says, can I talk to somebody? And I'm like, all right. And so I grab this kid with me from this youth group, right? And so we walk over there, and I say, I'm really sorry. We're going to move the car. She goes, no, 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 I'm not worried about the car. What are you doing here? And, you know, there's every, every youth group has that kid. And this kid just rocked out the gospel. He said, hi, we're from this church in Vegas. We moved up here. This is Grace City Church. We're up here to show God's love in a practical way. And then he starts talking about how Jesus served us by dying on the cross for our sins to bring us back to the Father. And that how when we trust in him, we have joy. And he just started talking about all this stuff. I mean, the kid killed it. And I was like, man, I'm coming to faith again. I'm like, that was incredible. You know? But as he's talking... The police officer looked at me and she said, I'm not going to take off my glasses. 
She said, because underneath them, I'm crying. She went on to tell us that every single day, she patrols this area of the neighborhood. And every single day, she sees people who are in need, who are helpless, who have a hurt habit and hang up. But she's never seen a group of kids come down here and do what they're doing in that community with such joy on their face. And she said, please keep doing what you're doing. I would love to tell you in that moment the clouds broke, water just appeared on this little island, and we baptized her and celebrated. But it didn't happen. You see, our job, guys, is not to save people. That's God's job. What's our job? To share the gospel. Faithfulness is not, le- is not saving people. Faithfulness is sharing and letting God save people. And who's to say the next time that woman encounters a Christian, her heart hasn't been opened just a little bit more by the Spirit, to the next time she hears about Jesus, she comes running to him with joy. As followers of Jesus Christ, God wants to send us out on mission. That's one of the reasons he put his spirit inside of you. It doesn't matter if you're three or 90. The spirit of God can use you to proclaim the gospel in your neighborhood. One of my good friends by the name of Ron in Las Vegas, he's, he was like 65 years old. And I remember he came up to me and he said, Am I too old to go to Belarus? I went, what? I told him, I said, I think it would be disobedience to God not to go because you're worried about your age and not trusting in the spirit behind you and you. And he just published a book (laughs) talking about his mission in Belarus. And I have seen middle school students, elementary students, share the Jesus with their words and show Jesus with their actions. Third grade student by the name of Shannon, I watched her lead her teacher to faith in Jesus and watched her get baptized at our church. In third grade, I was trying to run away from my teacher and she's sharing Jesus because she understood that when Jesus saved her, he didn't give her a happy meal size of the spirit. He gave her the same supersized spirit that Romans 8 tells us raised Jesus from the dead. And she proclaimed the gospel. Iron City, I can't thank you enough for the way you serve and bless our church. The way you pray for us. But I'm not also out there in the most unreached area of the United States. I'm not out there going, you know what, Alabama's reached. I've been driving around your city. You've got work to do too. You've got neighbors, family, and friends who don't know Christ. How can you proclaim Jesus with your words and demonstrate Jesus with your actions? Let's pray.